Welcome everyone. This is episode 12 of our new interview series. I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development with the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana and we're here for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. Today's guest is super fascinating to have. It's Mr. Steve Walker and I'm very excited uh, to talk to him. So We'll, we'll jump into a series of questions, Steve. I really appreciate you making the time to come and sit down Thank with you, us. Jeffrey. I'm Absolutely. looking forward to it. Thank you. Well, all right, Steve. Um, you retired. This first question is going to give a lot of background. It's going to be very long. The rest won't be that way. But okay. I want to I set this up properly. So you retired from J.P. Morgan Chase in 2015 after a 39-year career in commercial banking. You were president and CEO of Commercial National Bank from 1989 to 1997 and assumed executive positions at the headquarters of each respective entity with whom you worked. You have been honored to cite but a couple by being named to the Junior Achievement of North Louisiana Hall of Fame Laureates and LSU's E.J. Orso College of Business Hall of Distinction. All this to say you have had an unusually successful professional career and could live anywhere in the world you chose. We are so happy that you did, but I have to ask, why have you chosen to continue to be involved in this community and why did you stay in the Shreveport Bossier area? Okay, well it is a complicated and long question. Uh, it's kind of interesting to hear you give that rendition. The last part of my career with J.P. Morgan Chase was a national scope part of that career, and I traveled all over the United States, and I had responsibility for markets. Uh, there were uh, about 75 markets spread across the United States, so I pretty much went to every city in America that is 100,000 people or more. So, if, well, let's say it this way, that were in the top 100 cities of America. And I spent time there, did business there, and and understood the economics of those places. And so you're right, uh, and, and my children would say to you, well, we did live in a lot of those places. So after I left Commercial National Bank and um, got into the merger craze of the banking business, we lived in Jackson, Mississippi, we lived in Nashville, Tennessee, and then we made the decision to come back here. But we lived away for a long time. Prior to that, I had lived in Houston for uh, 11 years. So we've lived other places, uh, and we choose to live here. And so your question is, why? And I, I think that's a valid question. First, let's recognize that there is no perfect place. There just is not. I've been to, I told you I've been to these top 100 cities. And they all have advantages and disadvantages, and there's some things I miss about some of those places. Uh, but there's some things that when I was away, I missed about this place. And so since there is no perfect place, you find a place where you feel comfortable and where you're hopeful that, that your quality of life can be what you want it to be. And I think that's what uh, the Arklatex offers to me. The other thought I have about it is that I think of myself as a resident of the Arklatex. This is a regional economy. 
Uh, and Shreveport, Bossier City is the hub of that region and provides medical care, accounting, uh, legal uh, services. It provides those kind of services to the entire um, region. But we should think of ourselves as, as members of that region. And we can talk about the economics of that region in a minute, which really hurt, suffered over the uh, last 30 to 40 years, but it seems to be really improving today. And so it's that, uh, it's that improvement and that quality of life that is offered here that we can get into, if you like, sure. that causes me to choose to be here. Yeah, maybe talk about, you said you missed some aspects of this community yeah. while you're away, so maybe talk a little bit about those and then I'll follow up. I want you to kind of define, you talk about this as a region, what is, what is your definition of the geographic region that we're discussing? Well, let's, let's start with the definition of the, of the region. I consider it to be the Arklatex, and so you take Shreveport Bossier as a hub, and you basically take a 150-mile radius. Uh, so you go to Tyler, Texas, you go up to Little Rock, over to Jackson, Mississippi, down toward Baton Rouge, not including Baton Rouge, but you make a a, a, a not equal circle, but you make kind of a, a funny looking circle around there. That's what I consider to be the Arklatex. Uh, Monroe could be a part of that, Ruston certainly. Uh, I grew up in Plain Dealing, Louisiana, was my hometown. My wife grew up here in Shreveport. So part of the reason why we're here is because it was our birth home. But Nancy and I have been married 50 years. Of those years, we've spent 20 of those in living in some other market than here. So as we retired, this is where we chose to stay. Uh, so that's kind of the region I'm talking about. The reasons why, you know, it's, it, that's a complicated thing and it's very personal. But let's just look at it I was a banker, so I look at things from an economic point of view. Let's start there. The cost of living here is really very reasonable. If you look at the quality of our health care in this market, and as I get older, health care becomes more important, right? But it's important to everybody. The quality of health care here is excellent, and the cost of it is acceptable, and it is available. And so uh, I, think, I think the cost of living, uh, everything from housing, uh, my son's a home builder down in Houston, doing great. He's building homes that today, the same home in Houston would cost twice as much per square foot as that home in Shreveport would cost because the land is more expensive, the taxation is more expensive, the licensing is more expensive. Um, and then to run that home, the utilities are more expensive. And so the cost of living here is really very good. Um, and, and I think people overlook that sometimes. Uh, I talked about medical care being very good here and is accessible. And one of the things I like is because we are a big enough city to have what we need, we are also small enough to know one, one another individually. If I go to a hospital in Houston, I'm probably not going to know my doctor. If I go for medical care in Shreveport, I'm probably going to know who I'm talking to. And I probably will have known that person personally for some time. 
and you have that opportunity to have that kind of connection that is really kind of unique. So you get quality care. We're big enough for quality care, small enough to be personal. And the third aspect is our community has had a long-time relationship with medical centers outside of here, MD Anderson in Houston, um, the, the cancer group in Memphis, uh, you know, at the Danny Thomas Center up there, and, and, uh, and then I recently went to Mayo Clinic out in Scottsdale for something that I was referred to by my doctor. My point is our doctors here are willing to connect us to world-class things when we need to go outside, and most of the time you don't have to. So, so I've covered cost of living, I've covered medical care, Let's talk about recreation. As I retired, recreation was always important. Raising children, I duck hunted with my children, I played golf with them. Uh, you know, they did Little League, and, and I know the YMCA is getting ready to develop the Little League program uh, more fully here, which I think is a great thing. But you look at whether it's soccer and Cabosa, and you got, and I've got grandchildren involved in that program. Recreation here is very uh, accessible. It's also affordable. So, so you gonna? I think you know that I've been involved in the regeneration of Southern Trace Country Club. That country club is less expensive than its counterpart would be in almost any other city. Uh, and so, again, it's accessible, it's available, and it's low cost. Uh, and so I'm a hunter, I fish, uh, I like to play golf, you know, if you're in racket sports, if you're in, in any other kind of sport, if you're interested in, in camping or, or uh, those kinds of things, those things are available. You might have to drive a little bit, but you know, there's some great rivers in Arkansas that you can float. Uh, I just went, uh, went through, uh, I was taking my grandchildren to camp this summer, last week, and we just went over the river in Glenwood, Arkansas, and there were people floating that river. Some of them had to be from the Arklatex, right? So it, and that's like a three-hour drive. And so my point is, a lot of those things are available. And when you live around, which I have done, like I lived in Houston for 11 years, those things are there but there's so many people, they're hard to access, and you have to really go further, and they're more expensive when you get there, or more likely they're gonna be private, and you have to be a member of the club to participate, whereas here, you don't. Uh, you can be, you, you, you know, it's there for our, our involvement. Then the other side of our city that, that I think we overlook sometimes is the arts, community is very developed here uh, you know the symphony the the opera the little theater the strand theater all those things you add them together if you're interested in anything you can find it here and it's available to you so I would say recreation is is very available here and, and much better than most places uh, one of the things I like about the community is our charitable attitude. I think in some of your prior sessions, you talked to some people that were involved in philanthropy. Shreveport Bossier 
and the Arklatex are a very philanthropic area, more so than I find when I lived elsewhere. We don't have as much money as some other places, but the heart is big. And the heart cares enough that there are a lot of contributions. So if you look at our community foundation and you compare it to the community foundations of other cities our size, it's larger than normal, which means that the gifts, people have given money to the community foundation and then its gifts back to the community uh, for charitable purposes is bigger than the same situation in other cities. It's true of private foundations. I know you've talked to some of the private foundation people and I serve on on a couple of those boards. My wife serves on two or three. Um, and what we learn in that is this is a very giving philanthropic community in relation to its size. The need is greater than the amount of money we have and so it feels like sometimes we come up short. But I can tell you, it's bigger in relation to the, the problem than it is in a lot of places. And then finally, I would, I would say, and this is going to surprise you and most people listening to this, uh, I have found the education system here to be an advantage. Um, my children uh, went to public school. My grandchildren go to public school. and. We need to raise the level of a lot of our schools, especially those that are struggling. We need to raise that, and we really have a challenge. But we focus on that, and we forget to focus on, we have some really good education options here. Uh, some of the high schools, some of the middle schools, and elementary schools are really as good as there is uh, across the southern U.S and you can access that if you live here and we have as a family and anybody else can as well so i think the education system is better than we give it credit for it's got a long way to go it can get better and there's a lot of people that don't have everything they need so i see the negative but i see the positive of it as well is what i'm pointing out uh, and so those are kind of the things that i look at and say I can have the quality of life here at a very reasonable cost that I'd like to have, and it's home. Uh, although we've lived away enough in our life that it, that's not the driving force. The driving force is it's a good quality of life. Sorry to take so long. No, that's perfect. <laughs> so let's let's dive into one of your latest ventures, uh, one in which I know you've been deeply and greatly involved. So you recently were part of a group that put together a plan to buy Southern Trace Country Club from its previous owners, Club Corps. Talk to me about this process, how you and your group made it happen, what you were hoping to achieve by being membership owned, and some of the changes you have made to the club since the purchase occurred. Well, first, let's talk about what Southern Trace is. Uh, Southern Trace is a part of a bigger um, um, phoenix that is rising within this market, which is considered to be South Shreveport. So 
within, if you are at the Southern Trace neighborhood, there's a Brookshire's shopping center being built with almost walking distance. It's not walking distance, but it's almost. Uh, there are new restaurants in the area. Uh, there's, you know, we're, so we're developing retail capability and service capability. Uh, a couple of new churches, a new school, uh, not a public school, a private school, but what I'm saying is South Shreveport is, is if you go drive around, you're going to be surprised how much is being built right now today, how much has been built over the last decade. Um, and so Southern Trace is a part of that. It's not alone. Uh, to answer your question, I am on the executive committee of Southern Trace Country Club. Uh, and there's two things there. There's the Southern Trace Homeowners Association, which represents all the homes in the neighborhood, which are over 500 homes now. Uh, so it's a pretty big development. Then there's the Southern Trace Country Club. So I'm just talking about the country club at this point, but I actually live in the neighborhood as well. I'm on the executive committee. There's four of us that are involved in that. And then we have a board of members of 11 people, uh, including the, the four I mentioned. Um, and then the members did buy the club back from Club Corp two years ago. And actually our second anniversary is on June, on July 1st. So we're about to hit our second year. And pretty proud of what's happened in the last two years. But let's talk about prior to that. And you said, why? The reason why is that what had been, Southern Trace is 32 years old, I think is the right number, 30 something years old from its beginning. It began kind of as a private club. It then became corporately owned outside this market and it worked for quite a while. What happened was a group of private equity buyers bought the entity that owned Southern Trace and when they bought it, they began managing with the, instead of being country club centric, I want to run this as well as possible to satisfy my, my, my members, they began running it from the point of view, I want to maximize the cash flow I take out of it. Well, you know what that does, and you've seen it throughout this market, whether it's in the banking business that I was in, or it's in the oil and gas business, or it's in any of the other businesses. When that happens, and people are focused on withdrawing cash rather than investing, things deteriorate. And that's what happened to that club. It deteriorated. Uh, and it went from 1,200 members to about 800 members. Uh, and uh, the quality of what those members was, were receiving was not creating member satisfaction. And that's what caused us to say, this is where we live. This is where we entertain ourselves. And this is part of our quality of life. We need it to be excellent. And the current owner is not going to make it the way we want it to be because they're interested in how much cash they can withdraw. So we bought it in order to convert it back to the quality of life and excellence that we would, that once had at the beginning and would like to have again. So that's what we've been about for the last two years. So you say, well, what have you done? We have, um, we've rebuilt our golf course. 
In fact, it's closed right now. It's been closed since December, and we've totally rebuilt it. People say, well, you know, what'd you do? We dug all our greens down four feet and got sand that was made especially out of uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, to, to so that our viscosity of drainage would be right. We got grass from South Carolina. We, we brought in uh, a construction company from Chicago. There wasn't anybody locally that knew golf course construction. We brought in an irrigation company. We brought in all kinds of, of skilled people, and we have spent a lot of time and money bringing it not only up to where it once was, but beyond that, to where today our golf course, when it opens on July the 2nd of this, uh, of this year, so we're 30 days away. Uh, in 30 days, we'll reopen the course. I think people will, will say, that's as good a golf course as I can play anywhere in a big area. And I mean big. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be as good as any golf course in Louisiana. It's going to be certainly as good as most of the golf courses in Texas. We may not have quite as much money as some of the, some of the Texas places, but we've got a really nice topography, a really nice layout, and I think you're going to see that. But Southern Trace is a lot more than golf. So we started with golf because unless you get that right, the rest doesn't work. We started with golf, but added to that, we've come up with a master plan. We hired a, an architectural firm out of uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, that's done clubs all over the United States. Uh, they gave us a big picture concept. We then decided we can take that big picture concept, bring it back to Shreveport, and we hired Sundahlin Associates, who's a local architectural firm here in Shreveport, to help us do the detail work of, well, what are the chairs going to look like? What are the, you know, what's the air conditioner system? How, the, how are we going to run those vents? What's the electrical system going to be? And they've spent a lot of time and effort designing a master plan. So we haven't yet broken ground to rebuild our clubhouse and, and uh, bring it up to today's standards, but we certainly plan to. Um, so we've done a lot of work getting ready to do that, and we're ready. Uh, and so, um, so if the golf course o o opens and then we redo the clubhouse, the clubhouse only works if your if your dining and activities in there are run well. So we basically restaffed the whole club uh, from two years ago. So at, there were, I think. I think there were eight or nine department managers at the time we bought the club back. Only one of them survived the, the test of can you run an excellent operation, and one of them survived. The others we replaced. And we brought people here from Memphis, from Florida. Uh, we hired people locally. We just hired some really good people. So we built an outstanding staff that I think is the linchpin of, of it all. In other words, if you don't have a really good leadership team and a management team, nothing else matters. You can have a great facility, but it's not going to stay great unless you manage it right. 
Well, I feel really good about our management team. And so that's been done. And luckily during COVID and during the reconstruction of our golf course, we really haven't lost anybody. We've attracted new people uh, to our staff, but we really haven't lost anybody. And so that's a pretty good challenge, you know, but we were able to do that. Uh, the other thing that's happened is we're, we're working on our aquatic center, the pool, the swimming pools and everything that goes with that. And we've just finished this two weeks ago, we finished refurbishing all three of our pools uh, and everything that goes around it. And boy, they're active this week. You should, you should go out there. They're, we've, you know, they were in really bad condition. Kids were complaining, my, I, I cut my toe on this missing tile or whatever, or the bottom is really rough. And i tell you how we did that. I came here to the Y uh, and met with Gary Lash. Gary put me in touch with the people that built your pool and they came and redid the pools at Southern Trace. Um, we've added pickleball. Uh, we did not have pickleball courts. So we built two new tennis courts, one just for tennis and one for four pickleball. Uh, and what we're finding is we don't have enough pickleball because it's really popular and really growing. If you go out there to, this evening, you're gonna see, it'll be packed. People will be waiting in line to play pickleball. So we're gonna need more. All right, so we're adding to our tennis, and we call it racket sports. Uh, we're adding to our racket sport facility. We'd like to build a observation tower around the tennis courts. We've added uh, a brand new um, practice facility. We all know what David Toms did, and now Eastridge owns here in town called 265. Fabulous place first class you don't you're not gonna go anywhere and find a better facility than what he created there uh, well we've created our own equivalent of that at Southern Trace it didn't exist before but while we closed the we built it before we closed the golf course and that's what have kept golfers going during this time when the course is closed is that new practice facility which is much more extensive than we've had before so what I would say to you is we've done a lot of work uh, and we're very happy. We think our golf course is finished as of 30 days from now. Our staff is totally in place. We don't have any more work to do there, in my opinion. Our swimming pools are back to where they need to be. Our tennis facility is certainly much better than it was and we still have plans to add to it and then we need to redo the clubhouse. And so it's gonna take a couple of more years, really, to finish the project, but we're a long way down the road. And what we're noticing is a lot of people are starting to be interested in joining, and we have a lot of interest about that. In fact, we're gonna to begin to run out of room before too long, uh, which is both a good and bad problem, right? And so, uh, now's the time for, if people are interested in joining now's the time to do it and talk to me a little bit about the intricate just because I know a little bit and it's interesting the intricacies of the deal how how it, how you made it happen how you guys put the funds together cobbled together the funds to purchase this from I said Club Corp but I guess it's Club Corp um, 
and just how how that deal was structured? Well, it Club Corp thought the club was worth a lot more than we thought it was worth, uh, and we've been trying to do this for a little bit of time, like several years, um, and it just never could get the deal to meet. What finally happened was they finally woke up to the fact that they were losing members at a pretty fast clip and that if it continued they were instead of pulling money out they were going to have to uh, they weren't going to be able to make ends meet that got them to be realistic about the price that we needed to pay and it's like every other business if you pay too much at the beginning you can't overcome that problem and we were not going to pay too much and so we bought the club at a real bargain. Uh, you know, it's, it's public information, so I can tell you, we paid $4 million for the club, which includes the golf course, the clubhouse, the tennis facilities, the swimming pool facilities, and everything in it. If you were to try to build that from scratch, you'd be talking about more than three times that number. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is, we then needed to spend another four and a half million redoing the golf course and doing the things I just talked about. So we had to in invest at least as much just getting back up to par as we did when we purchased it because there was a lot of deferred maintenance. And so that was part of the consideration. In order to make all that work, um, we had a, around a hundred of our members who all became what we call founders, and they put up the seed money uh, to make that happen. And then Origin Bank here locally stepped up and said, we like what we see. We think it's important for Shreveport. We think uh, it's going to work, and we would like to make the loan that goes with that seed money. So if we took the money our members put up and the money that Origin loaned us, and that's how we have paid for all these things I've talked about. That's great. Okay, so my next question is, and all of these are a little shorter. You can take as much time as you like. The uh, questions aren't as long. I know my answers are long. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's, that's what we want. That's why we're here. So the question is, from your perspective, where is Shreveport Bossier headed as a community? Well, and, and until you understand where you've been, it's hard to know where you're headed. So let's talk about where we've been for a few minutes. Um, and that's a difficult story because Shreveport, Bossier, the Arklatex, the whole region, was a very vibrant economic region for a long, long time. And then starting somewhere around the late 70s, but let's call it 1980. Somewhere around 1980 until 1990, there was a hole created in this economy, the region's economy, and that hole was big. And so what happened was we took a very diversified, vibrant economy and we lost the center of it. So those people at the low end of the economic spectrum um, they were still here. Some of the people at the upper end of the economic spectrum were still here, but the people in the middle left 
and you say, well, why did they leave? And I think you have to understand that to understand where we're going. And I'm more optimistic today than I've been in a long time. I was pretty pessimistic during some of that period where we were losing those things. But we, hadn't, we haven't been losing that in several years now, and we're beginning to fill the hole that was created. And I think we're, uh, we're, in the, we're close to filling that hole, and we're starting to look over the edge, and then we can go beyond it. But we've been filling that hole now for really since for about 30 years. So what happened in that decade was huge. And I'm gonna give you three things that happened just so you say, well, why did they all leave? They left because their jobs left. Uh, so let's look at, and, there, and it wasn't one thing. It was like five or six things, but I'm just gonna give you three. The first was the oil and gas fluctuation of the oil and gas industry that went from $100 oil to $8 oil, back to $40 oil, back to $8. That fluctuation up and down created a consolidation in the oil and gas industry. Uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, um, uh, uh, Denver, Colorado, those cities all began, Shreveport, Louisiana, those were oil-based economies. And in order for the oil companies and their service companies to survive, they consolidated to Houston, Texas. Houston was suffering too, by the way, during that time. I was actually living in Houston at that time. Uh, and I saw it. But what happened was companies from Shreveport and Tulsa and Oklahoma City, et cetera, merged into and consolidated with companies in Houston. And what do you do? If you're doing that, you draw that to your headquarters. And so those people, I remember being on the bus one day uh, in Houston, Texas, city bus. Uh, it was before my wife and I had two cars. We were living, we had a child and we were living with one car. And I was kind of a trainee. It was early in my career. I remember sitting there and the people on the bus are all talking about, you know, I sure want to move back to Shreveport, but my job's here. I can't go. I got to. I'm hope. I hope I retire soon. I'm going back. Well, I kept hearing that conversation, and those were people from Texas Eastern and Pennzoil, and uh, later it was Arkla Gas, and there were seven publicly traded companies that left Shreveport and went to Houston. Same thing happened in these other cities, so we weren't alone. That took a lot of middle management jobs with it. And that is a big hole. That was one, okay? That would have been enough by itself to slow you down, but then we got hit by a couple of other things. We had a real estate crisis uh, all over the United States in the 80s. We changed the tax law and, um, and we began to, the private equity industry came about and their idea was to consolidate a lot of privately held companies. Shreveport was dominated by privately held companies. Uh, people who had built up their companies, but they're now at the end of their career. Sometimes their family can succeed them, but most often they can't and they sell their company. And I was sitting here running a bank in Shreveport and I watched 
numerous customers of our bank that we loaned $5 million plus to. So it was a significant business sell through the private equity uh, consolidation that took place in the United States. And again, this isn't just Freeport. This is happening to a lot of cities like us. Um, and those businesses sold, they consolidated, and those jobs moved. And the people had to move with it uh, to, to, uh, to keep their, you know, to support themselves. Um, and, and then I would say, so if you look at that hole, um, I told you I was going to give you three. I've forgotten what the third one. Oh, um, national manufacturing. Think about what happened. Shreveport was a home of a lot of national manufacturers. Uh, AT&T made telephones here. We don't use telephones anymore. Those jobs went overseas and then were eliminated. They're gone. And that was a AT&T plant here. That was a lot of people, a lot of jobs. General Motors made trucks here. They still make trucks, but they don't make them here. Uh, and they were here for 30 plus years and that was a lot of jobs. And those people made a lot of money and they had health benefits and all that. Uh, Libby Glass made glassware here, glasses. That's gone. Uh, GE made transformers here, electrical transformers. I can go down the list, but we had a large manufacturing component of national companies here, and they liked it here because of what I told you, low cost of living, good water, good electricity, and a good labor force was here. And they were doing well, but in their businesses, as their businesses changed, that left. So when you, what happened was, it's like baseball, three strikes, you're out. What happened is those three strikes hit us all at the same time. And that was from, say, 1977 to 1990. That period of time created that hole. And we've been climbing out ever since, and I told you we're about to finish climbing out of it now, and we can talk about that in a minute, but that's how we got to where we are. And that's why people went from realizing or recognizing this as a really good regional economy to an economy that was suffering, because it was, it was suffering. And what we need to do is replace that middle layer that is in our economy and we've been about that first the casinos came that helped some uh, but the, but those are lower income jobs in a large case so they didn't the casinos helped but they didn't really replace General Motors and AT&T um, we've begun some of our local businesses have begun to expand locally privately owned businesses and entrepreneurs that are building things they have begun to expand, but it takes a while to build, right? And so to make up for those that left, big ones left and small ones started, but those small ones are becoming big again. And then the third thing um, is, is those, that oil and gas business is being, what we, we were oil and gas dominant today 
the timber industry is improving here, and timber is a big business in this region. Uh, and that's the other thing that left. Sawmills left, uh, paper mills left, uh, and they weren't just living, leaving here. This was a consolidation of American economy. But today, there's a sawmill being built in Plain Dealing, Louisiana, a $130 million investment. There's a similar one being built in Men close to Menden. Again, all that in this region. And when, and when the tide rises in Plain Dealing and Menden, it helps us here. Because I told you people come to this hub for services. Uh, and, and so what I see is all the things that hit us that created the whole, we finally have begun to address those. The new battery plant, which is going into the old AT&T plant, Amazon with their new center out here. Uh, and we talk about those because those come from the outside. What we don't talk about as much is if you look around town, you're going to find some entrepreneurs who are building businesses here that are doing quite well. And they've gone from being small operations to bigger, being bigger operations. And that creates jobs. And that's what it's about. If you create jobs that fill that middle, your economy will be healthy. And that's what we were missing for 30 years. Today, I feel much better about it. So that's where I think we're going. I think we're finally gotten over the hump. That's great. I love it. I hope that's right. All right, so my next question is, what's holding us back? You know, if you say, well, what are your wishes that you would like to improve? I would, there's always, I, I, when I worked for J.P. Morgan, it was my belief that I worked for the best financial institution in the world. And if you were to ask me, is everything perfect at J.P. Morgan, I would tell you not by a long shot. There's a lot of things they need to fix and work on. And that's going to always be true of wherever you are. So when I talk about what I think I would wish for this place, don't take it as a negative because it's just part of the evolution of, of things. Um, but let's take government, and it's true lots of places in government, it's true here. And it's not just one government, it's the school board, it's the parish commission, it's the, it's the city's offices, it's the state government, it's the federal government. So let's just talk government in general. Personally, I think government needs a better business plan not just business, but a strategic plan that we invest in ourselves in a strategic way. We can't afford to do everything, but let's what we do do, kind of like we're doing at Southern Trace, we can't afford everything we want out there, but we can fix certain things, and when we fix it, let's make it excellent. That's what I think government needs to do. It needs to be strategic about we don't have enough resources, so how do we spend those resources we do have? And, you know, we could talk politics, and you and I would probably differ about that, and that's a good, healthy thing. 
but I don't think we would differ in that we would like a strategy that we can all understand and fit into. And I think we need a, a better strategy, and it needs to be a regional strategy. If I would say one of the one of the things about local government entities here is they're so fragmented. They and they well, I'm just going to worry about my world, and I'm not going to worry about your world. I don't think that works because we live together. We got to worry about each other, and we need to work better together. I think, but government needs a better strategy. Needs to be more regional in focus. Um, I would like to say we have to believe in ourselves. When that hole was created that I talked about, we began to lose confidence in ourselves. That lack of confidence manifests itself in, in, in you know, negative publicity and bad statistics and things like that. And we begin to lose belief that we're worthy of a good place. What you're doing, I think, is trying to reestablish that belief. Uh, and it's just one step, right? But it's, it takes a lot of steps. But I would like to see a stronger belief by those of us that live here that we can make this a really good place. Uh, and I think we just need to believe in ourselves more. And then we need to foster a more inclusive mindset. I would not, if I would tell you there's one thing that I miss about living elsewhere, I found when I was in, when I was in other cities in the U.S., I found them to be more inclusive. And you say, well, what does that mean? It, well, certainly it starts more racially inclusive, and we know about all that here, but it goes beyond the racial inclusiveness. It goes into economic levels. Everybody within the economic strata needs to have participation in the, in the strategy of how you get out of this. Uh, it goes into uh, the attitude of common good versus personal good. Uh, and we need, as a, as a community, we need to see whatever we do for the common good is more important than what we do for our individual good because it raises everybody. And so you, you can go through all of it, but I think we have a proclivity in this market to be too individually focused and not common good enough focused. Um, so anyway, and those why are the things. What, what causes that? I think, think? I, think, um, I think when you become when you become less of a believer uh, and you suffer a little bit, you tend to become more defensive. And I think that, that we've been through a 30-year period of that hole I talked about, and that was a difficult period, and I think that created some of it. And then our history of, of, uh, of, of uh, prejudice and racial uh, problems it, we we have to face up to the fact that, that is a problem, and that, that that goes back to our our ancestors and to our roots. It's been here a long time, and so you know. But by the way, it exists a lot of other places. 
And it's not a southern phenomenon, by the way. Boston, Massachusetts is very much that way. Uh, and I don't mean to throw them under the bus. I just use them as an example because you, you, would, th you would think they would be more inclusive. But I spent some time there when I was in school, and I found out it wasn't. Or at least in my opinion, it wasn't. And so I just give you that as an example to say, as a society, America needs to become more inclusive rather than less. And I think we've got, that's our opportunity, it's also our challenge, because I think we're having a hard time doing it. We're getting to politics now. <laughs> that's great. No, no areas off base. So. <laughs> okay. All right, so I've got two other questions. They're, you've covered both of them a little bit, but I'm going to ask you specifically because I think it'll drive you in different areas. The, the first is, what will propel us forward? Well, uh, ourselves. You, so the members of Southern Trace, basically those hundred people that put up the seed money to make that happen, they could have said no. I'm not putting that money up, and it wouldn't have happened. So those hundred people made something happen. Brooks Grocery Company, that's expanding out there, that I talked about, they could have said, "Well, I've got six or seven stores in town. I just I got enough," and they could have not made that investment. Um, you know, it, Amazon could have decided to put their distribution plant somewhere else. Um, and that spur, spurred a thought I want to come back to, but Please. it's about us individually deciding, you know what, I'm going to take charge of this and I'm going to do what I can do. Same thing when it comes to inclusiveness. What can I do to be more inclusive with those people around me? That's a question we all should ask. And that would help a lot if we all were honest about the answer to that question. The point I wanted to come back to. Sure. Shreveport has something that a lot of markets don't have and can't create and will never have. And that's our location. Our location is dynamite. The combination of the river and the highway system and we do need to finish I-49, but at least we'd have most of it. But the, the, and the rail system, if you combine all of that with our location and you think we're within an easy day's, half day's drive of the most dynamic markets in the United States, Dallas, Houston to start, then you, stretch a little bit further you get to Austin not that much further to San Antonio so a lot of that's Texas but we can access that so we can distribute there we can uh, we can ship in and out of there we can go there for services you can end up personally I've got grandchildren in Houston so I go down there and I go to baseball games and I go to things in Houston so I get to access the the big city uh, and still live in Shreveport. That's a pretty nice thing, I think. So my point is our location is excellent because you look to the north and the east and we really don't have any combination. So I talked about timber earlier 
and I've kind of grown up in the timber business. My family was in, in that business, and I still am a little bit. Uh, timber is important here, and what do you use timber for? You make lumber and plywood and OSB. How much OSB do you think they need to build all those apartments in Houston, Texas, or Dallas, Texas, or all that stuff you see down there? That lumber's coming from somewhere. A lot of it should come from here. So that location, and that's just one example, that location is something that's really special here that I think we forget about, take for granted. And then having water and having cheap electricity, re relatively cheap electricity in comparison to others, is going to become more important as we go forward. So those things are, we have some natural things to help, so now we just individually have to do our part to, to, to believe in it and do it. Go back to those hundred people that started that country club effort. Thank goodness they did, because if they hadn't, it wouldn't happen. All right, so I'm down to my last question. We may talk a little bit more, but um, lastly, even though you've covered some of this, uh, I'm gonna throw in plain dealing here. Lastly, what makes you prideful about being from plain dealing and about living in the Shreveport-Bossier area? Um, well, I hadn't even thought about that in a long time. I had the good fortune to leave plain dealing, go to LSU where I got two degrees. I ended up going to SMU where I got a banking degree. And then later in my career, I got to go, I had the advantage, I told you I lived in Boston for a while, I had the advantage mid-career to go back to Harvard uh, and get a management degree at Harvard. And what I learned in that process is the preparation that I was given as a child in terms of not just education, but values and ethics and beliefs and and motivations was it, from plain dealing was as good as anybody I was competing against in those places and those you know those are same thing happened at JP Morgan uh, they can pretty much hire people from all over the world and they hired some guy from plain dealing to run one of their businesses and and I guess what I'm saying is we can, those of us that live here should recognize that with hard work and with effort, what you need to prepare yourself is here. And that's, I'm proud of Plain Dealing for having done that for me. And I hope that we're still doing that for people that live Plain Dealing, Menden, Benton, Houghton, all those places I used to play football. Uh, I, I think that's happening in those places and people are going on. We talk about people coming back, thank goodness you came back uh, to live here. But I think it's also good uh, when people go away and succeed. And there are a lot of people that grew up in this region that have some really significant positions around the world. And there are a lot of them. And they care about this region. And so I guess my point is, I think we should celebrate those people that come back and those people that go elsewhere 
In my case, I went elsewhere and then I came back. I didn't come back at the beginning, I came back mid-career. So I'm proud of plane dealing for that. The other thing that I go through plane dealing a lot, I actually go to Louisville, Arkansas where I duck hunt. And I have a little farm up there where I deer hunt and duck hunt. I spend a lot of time up there and I just love it. It's a good life. And, you know, not everywhere can you do that. So it's nice. So I'm proud of those things. The people here are good people. Uh, and the resources we have here are, are at your disposal to prepare yourself to do what, anything you want to do. That's what I like about it. And you're a testament to that. Well, certainly. you know, I, I, I don't know. We, you can make that judgment yourself. Well, I appreciate you being here today. Uh, more than that, I appreciate you being here in this community, doing what you're doing, and we're all really fortunate to have you. So well, thanks thank, for making the time. Thank you. Uh, I, um, I, uh, I really appreciate that you're doing this. I think the stories need to be told, and it's more than uh, simply cheerleading. Cheerleading is important. But it's more than simply cheerleading. There are a lot of facts about this region that give, a, give me hope, and I think should give all of us that live here hope. And there are a lot of quality of life things that we should really appreciate more than we do, in my opinion. And so I'm glad that you're trying to reveal all that through the process that you're following here. It's, uh, it's, it's needed and it's important. Thanks for being a part. All right. Thank you.